This is the word of God. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptised for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day, as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen. I would now like to invite Pastor Young to deliver the sermon today. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to New Life this morning. Uh, my name is Young, pastor here at New Life. Uh, if you're just, just joining us, we're in the final three weeks of our First Corinthians series, uh, which you just heard. Uh, we're talking about being one in resurrection uh, throughout this entire series and becoming one with Jesus and, of course, being one with one another in our beliefs uh, and practices, especially with regards to the resurrection. Um, last week, if you weren't here, we opened this final section of our series by concluding that the resurrection is at the heart of the Christian message. So the resurrection is at the heart of the Christian message, and the passage that we looked at last week, we looked at the logical conclusions of uh, morally, theologically, and existentially, uh, what would happen if there was no resurrection. Now this week, as you've heard in our Bible reading, uh, we'll be looking at our Christian lives and also how our behaviors only make sense when they're shaped uh, by this knowledge that the resurrection will happen. But before I get into that, how about I pray for us, and then we'll get into the sermon. Father, as we gather together this morning, we want to say that we have faith in the resurrection. As we've exited from the Easter period, 
And as we look forward, we want to say, Lord, that we still believe in the resurrection of your son, Jesus, that as he's risen, so we will rise again as well. We want this, Lord, to be words of faith, to be words that are etched upon our hearts, to be words that shape our lives, to be words that guide us. But we know, Lord, that it's not something that we can just bend ourselves around, but it's only something that can come with the knowledge of the Holy Spirit giving us wisdom and helping us to form around your son, Jesus. Would you help us, Lord, to conform to his image? Would you help us, Lord, to examine the resurrection, the life, the death, and the resurrection so that we might be able to take up our crosses daily, so that we might face our own deaths, and so that we might say, with faith, we know we will rise again. God, would you be with us in our service? Would you empower the words that are coming? And would you help us, Lord, by illuminating this scripture into our hearts that we might be able to live through it and live by it, that we might be able to say that your words are the words of life for us. Be with us and help us love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, when I first became a Christian, uh, I think I've mentioned this a few times, um, a lot of my friends around me, they couldn't help but notice this change in me. Um, I was working at the time, and so uh, there were a lot of people that I was seeing you know, quite regularly, daily. There were also people that I was just speaking to uh, very regularly as well, and they couldn't help but notice a change in me because life just changed quite drastically. You know, when they invited me out drinking, I would say no, and when they would ask why, I would talk about Jesus, and this was not a regular thing uh, that they were used to for the past two, five, ten years, um, I would engage them in very long conversations throughout the night. You know, I would finish work, get home, talk to these guys about how Jesus had changed my life. And some of them very quickly, you know, tuned out and decided they didn't want any more of our friendship. Some of them were quite intrigued. You know, they would just listen. They would ask uh, quite a few questions about all of this change, about this belief in Jesus, because a lot of what they had experienced about Christianity was just through what they'd seen on TV or just through uh, their friends who had gone to church. And so they couldn't really quite understand, but they, want, they were a little bit curious because they'd seen and witnessed how my life had turned around quite drastically. Now, one night I was talking to a particular friend, and while we were talking, I just very offhandedly talked about uh, some missionaries that were going to be visiting. And I talked about how I was giving a donation to these missionaries. And then my friend just interrupted me. He said, hang on a second. I'm on board with you making all of these positive changes in your life. I'm happy you're not getting drunk anymore. I'm happy that you're happy. But this is where I draw the line. And I was really confused. Like, why was this, of all things, the line you know, where I was giving to missionaries where he felt as though I'd crossed over into another, you know, another thing. So I tried to find out why he told me. Because I disagree with you thinking that you can buy your way into heaven. He felt as though I was being tricked into giving away my money so that I could get into heaven. For some reason, this was his conception of why I was doing any sort of giving. 
Because the things that we do as Christians, they make no sense at all apart from belief in resurrection. To my friend, my giving just seemed like it had to be selfishly motivated. Like if I wasn't getting anything out of it, what's the point of my giving? It was for the sake of getting something in his mind. Because the sacrificial and substitutionary death of Jesus, it wasn't something that he understood despite my best efforts to try to explain what this meant. Despite my best efforts to explain that this is why my life had changed. And in his eyes, everyone was doing something for themselves. So I was trying to get something by giving. My church, in his eyes, was trying to get something by tricking me into giving. But the way that we live as Christians, it has its roots in our future resurrection. And this is the only reason that it makes sense. It's the basis for generous giving, for our sacrificial living. It's why we uphold our faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's the only reason. Now before we take a look at why this is the case, from our Bible reading, you might have been a little bit confused. And so we want to make sure that we address verse 29. You'll see it on the screen now. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Now when we read this verse, whether or not you have been a Christian for just a short while or for a long time, there's an easiest mistake that we can make. We might believe that someone according to this verse, is getting baptized vicariously for someone else. That they're getting baptized in place of someone else who has already died. This might be how you've read it. Maybe it isn't, but this cannot be the case. This simply cannot be the case. Because not only is there no evidence in the Bible or throughout all of history of anything like this at this time, okay, it came later than this because people misinterpreted the verse and they started practicing this, but to be baptized in place of someone else is so far away from the way that the Apostle Paul explains baptism all throughout his letters. It would be better for us if we look at this verse as being baptized on account of the dead, okay, which is what you'll see on screen now. Now this part here might feel a little bit confusing or a little bit boring if you know, you're not very linguistically inclined. I don't think many of us are. <laughs> Even just using that phrase, uh, it's not a very normal phrase for people to, I don't know why I did it, but it's a very valuable skill to have. You know, when you actually look at these things, we need to compare the use of the key word here, which reads dead, with how it's used throughout the rest of this letter. Because for someone to use such a loaded word, surely we have to look at the immediate context and see how the Apostle Paul has used this word all throughout this letter. If we do this, we find that in every single instance except the very first, the word dead is used along with the idea of resurrection. So we see it, and I'm just gonna list a bunch of verses here, and you don't have to write them down, you don't have to even think about them, but you can you know, consider it later on if you want. We see it in verses 13, 21, 42. We see it as well in 16, 29, 32, 35, 52. We see it specifically talking about Jesus being raised from the dead in verses 12 and 20. And so it's very clear to us that he's talking about the resurrection of the dead here. He's not just talking about being baptized for someone who has died. The point is, unless it's clearly indicated otherwise, when you read the words the dead in this letter, you should expect that Paul is on one train of thought. He's talking about the dead who's, who are gonna be raised in the resurrection. This is very specifically 
who he's talking about because the resurrection is key to this faith. We've seen it in the past week. We're going to see it in the next two weeks as well. The resurrection is key to this faith, and this is what he's talking about. Paul's not talking about the dead in general, as in those that do not know Christ. He's talking about those who live again in Christ, those who will rise again in Christ. And so for the Corinthians and for us, when we read about the people who are baptized on account of the dead, we're talking about being baptized because we're compelled by the witness of the righteous dead who came before us. By the apostles, by the eyewitnesses, by anyone who came before us and testified that Jesus now lives. Those who we know are going to be resurrected in power and glory. This is who he's talking about. And we say that we want in. We want to join them, and this is why we're baptized for the dead. So we see and believe in the eyewitness account of Jesus being raised from the dead, and we want to be resurrected with him. This is the statement that's being made. And talking about baptism, we're only baptized and give our children over to be baptized because we have faith in life eternal through the resurrection. It's the only reason. This isn't like a 10-step program. This isn't anything that we, you know, we're forced to do. But because we have faith in the resurrection, we give ourselves over, we give our children over to be baptized. Because if there's no resurrection at all, what would be the point of being baptized? What would be the point of what we do? What are we saying that we have faith in? But the eagerness to be baptized, the desire to bring our children in to be dedicated into this community of faith, I mean, New Life, if you were here for a while, you saw this last year. You saw those getting baptized last year, and this is what Paul is getting at. In the baptism, we trust in the resurrection that is to come. This is a statement that's being made by those that are being baptized or by the parents that are giving their children over to be baptized, that they trust in the resurrection to come, and this is their act of faith. Without resurrection, it doesn't make sense for us to take part in the baptism. But it made perhaps a little bit less sense back for the Corinthians that we're reading about. Because Christianity was definitely not a majority religion at this time like it is for us now. Life was hard for Christians. Life was very difficult for Christians in this place since they were identifying themselves with the suffering Lord and their own lives faced all sorts of opposition because they were a minority. They were seen as unusual and it was a risk. Paul himself, he went through this kind of opposition and risk, and we read about it in verses 30 to 32. Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day. As surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. My PowerPoint was definitely not that stretched out when I made it. Anyway, if death was the final chapter in our lives, why would Paul bother with the trouble that he faced? Read that passage. He was not only dishonored and hated, and you can read through this in other letters that Paul's written. You can read read about this in the book of Acts as well, when you see after Paul's conversion what happened to him. He was imprisoned. Not only was he imprisoned, he was whipped. He was beaten with rods. 
This sounds a little worse than being whipped. He was shipwrecked out at sea. I didn't know the seriousness of this until I discovered that it's just really hard to find people that are out at sea. It's hard to rescue them. He was you know, shipwrecked overnight several times. He was hit with large stones until they believed that he was dead and then they left him outside of a town. Why risk your life if there is no resurrection? Why would Paul face all of this if there was no resurrection to come? Paul lived as though he had already looked death in the eye and had found that he would not suffer any more from it. This caused him to live life entirely differently, knowing that in his baptism into Jesus Christ's life, his death, he would also join him in his resurrection. He'd be raised with him in the end, and this meant that he faced death differently. And we also have this promise. This is why Paul rebukes the Corinthians. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. This thing that some of them were engaging in, this Epicurean way of living, gorging on food and getting drunk, revelry and wild living. It's an anti-Christian understanding of life, death, and resurrection. Even if they can say that they're Christians, their practices show that they have no practical belief in the resurrection. And so Paul tells them, come to your senses. He's saying to them, wake up. He's telling them, get sober. And this is another verse where we might make a mistake and think that Paul is telling the Corinthians to get sober so that they can take part in evangelizing to unbelievers, especially in that part where it says some people are ignorant about God. But no, what Paul is saying is he's calling out those that he's actually writing to. This letter is going to these very same unbelievers because he's stating plainly that they are unbelievers. They demonstrate this by their practice. You're not living the resurrection. You are not a Christian. The early church father, John Chris Austin, he relates a failure to believe in the resurrection with a failure to know God. If you don't know the resurrection, you probably don't know God. Because these kinds of doubts about resurrection can only exist in someone who fundamentally doesn't get the, ba- doesn't get the basic attributes of God. If you don't believe in the resurrection, it's a lack of faith about God's infinite power. Because the statement that's being made is, surely God cannot do this thing. So here's the question we have to face and answer. Is this life all there is? Is this life that you're leading all there is? Because if it is, we might as well join the Epicureans, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has risen? And that by this we receive the promise that we too will one day rise? Because otherwise, all that we do is foolishness. We have uh, Martin and Deborah visiting us from Cambodia. I don't know if you know these guys. They're missionaries of our church, uh, of Sezun. I've known them for quite some time, quite peripherally. Like we attended the same church 
And I heard about them going to Cambodia on missions, and my belief was that you know, they'll be back pretty soon because that was my whole picture of missions. You go for a very solid and very tiring two weeks, and then you say, man, my life has changed. Like, I cannot live the same way that I used to. And then you do. And these guys, they uprooted and relocated their lives to Cambodia for the last 10 years for the sake of the gospel. 10 years is a long time. It's as long as I've been married. You know, I remember hearing in 2020, while I was living in Melbourne, that Martin was being held in prison while he awaited a trial date. And like, they fought this case for four years. Martin and Deborah had sought to clear his name until they received that not guilty verdict. You know, Martin was actually in prison for three months of that four years. Um, he was in an eight by six meter cell, is that right? Yeah, with over 90 convicted criminals. Like eight by, I'm not very spatially aware, and so I, I struggle to even picture this in my mind. But eight by six is not a big, big space for 90 people to fit in. Like, yeah, try to figure it out for the people around you. He developed a serious skin condition during this time. And the fact that I'm saying that they're here visiting us in their native Sydney, like why? Why just a visit? If there is no resurrection, why do missions at great sacrifice and at great risk to yourself? What will be the point? Now, it's not limited to just things that are overtly Christian, okay? Please don't get me wrong, because everything we do, if there was no resurrection, will be insignificant in the grand scheme of things if our life ends in a full stop with our death here on earth. Bless you. If you're here now as a non-Christian, as an unbeliever, and you know, this can be a very confronting statement, that all of life is insignificant if you believe that death is all there is, and you know, it, it creates an existential crisis for you sometimes. Like, I once heard an atheist eulogy that tried to comfort the grieving parents by letting them know that their beloved child is now all energy and particles just all spread out across the universe. That this law of the conservation of energy, that no part of them is lost forever, but it's just bits of him are, are hitting you in the face. This is not comforting to me. Like, if you're hearing this message, this is not comforting for me. Is this existential horror the warm blanket for us as we face the cold terror of a lack of faith? When we have faith in the resurrection of the dead, as we've seen first through Jesus, our lives gain meaning. The troubles of this life become significant. It ensures that the struggles we must face on behalf of the gospel hold meaning. It tells us that death is not something to be terrified of anymore. It's a meaning given by God himself, and it's a meaning that will survive that death to come. And this is why we live missionally, and this is how we face each new day. So what is this resurrection body that Paul is talking about? Read with me. What you sow does not come to life until, unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you're not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. 
Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. What is Paul talking about here? Paul, he gives an analogy of a seed. It's not a miniature version of what it's going to become. Now, have you noticed this? Like a seed is, it's a seed. You know what a seed is. It doesn't look exactly like what it's going to become. It's clearly quite different from what it's going to grow into. If you've ever grown a plant before, you know this. If we had only ever seen seeds, though, and not what the seeds grow into, could you imagine what's going to come? Like, you just throw this thing in the ground. You know, you eat a watermelon, you spit it into the ground. The next day, you come, and you're like, what is this? You know, it just keeps growing. Our heads would spin when we saw what the seeds grow into. We can look at the seed and whatever sprouts and see that there is a relationship between the two. Something organically, biologically, there's something happening here that's similar, and yet we can also acknowledge that there's a marked difference between the plant and the seed. Brian Rosner, uh, he's an Australian theologian, he describes Paul's analogy like this. The afterlife to which Christians ultimately look forward is not like the experience of a leaf after it has died and fallen from a tree only to rot away, but more like the experience of a seed that germinates and then enters into a flourishing life of color and beauty to which its previous ex existence is hardly capable of being compared. I don't know if that explained it any clearer for you. Okay, just as we can't just figure out what a seed will look like once it's fully grown, just by looking at it, Paul tells us that we can't just look at our decaying bodies now and know what it's gonna look like in the resurrection. You can't just look at your own body now and figure out, now I know what my resurrection body's gonna look like. That would be very arrogant, right? Like every year I get older, every year as I look into the mirror, it becomes harder to picture my resurrection body. You guys who are aging know this. Like there's more of me to love the, every year that passes. There's deeper wrinkles. There's new skin issues. And all of these things make me understand that I have no idea what it's gonna look like later. Like a seed, our bodies are sown into corruption, in dishonor, in weakness. They're natural. But as the seed grows, scripture tells us, our bodies are raised in incorruption, in glory, in power, because they're spiritual. The difference between our bodies now and our bodies in the resurrection is like seed and tree, like night and day, and like Adam and Jesus. Read with me these last few verses, 45 to 49. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. This is talking about Adam. This is talking about all of us. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. So along with Adam, we are people here 
of the dust of the earth. And yet those of us who put our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, who put our faith in his resurrection being the promise of our own, then we're made of heaven. We're made into heavenly ones. We're promised citizenship in this kingdom. Now this concept might be a little bit confusing because of our cultural understanding of heaven. And when we think about heaven, I mentioned two weeks running now, about two different unbelieving friends and their notions of the end of life and of heaven. And lo and behold, they're actually vaguely similar ideas because they're influenced by the culture around them. And some of us might actually have taken all of this in for ourselves when we think about heaven. The theologian N.T. Wright, he clears it up for us this way. The point is not that the new humanity will exist in a place called heaven. Please get this out of your mind. This is not the point. Rather, it will originate there, where Jesus himself currently is in his own risen and life-giving body. And it will transform the life of those who are presently located on earth and earthy in character. What will our resurrection bodies be like? The short answer is, it's going to be like Jesus's. We know from the witness accounts of Jesus' resurrection that he's recognizable to his followers, and yet something is different. He's not immediately recognizable to some of his followers, because something is different. Let's go beyond some of the physical, spiritual attributes, though, because, you know, this is kind of where a lot of us stop. We think, what's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like when we have these resurrection bodies? But let's go beyond this, because there's going to be a complete moral transformation for us. This is very important for us, because you've experienced this in part already. Your heart experiences conviction as the Spirit moves in you when it comes to sin, when it comes to holiness, when it comes to the way that you lead your life. It reveals sin in you. It encourages you to confess. The Spirit, He helps you to repent and to turn back to God. But this is just in part, because one day when we're resurrected, we're going to be transformed completely so that the Spirit is fully manifest in us as in Jesus himself, helping us to live the new life in God. We spent the last three weeks and more, we've talked about the resurrection being the key to our faith. And this will become the centerpiece for yourself as you are resurrected and as the Holy Spirit continues to lead you. But have you reflected on this now? Looking forward to the resurrection, have you reflected on this already? Because when we read 1 Corinthians, the picture that we get is that we should already be living out this true humanity that God has in mind for us. And as we grow in our faith and gain the true wisdom of Christ's death and resurrection, we live it out. We've seen that this means a denial of some of the things of this world, some things that we might find enjoyable, some things that we know are sin, some things that we think might even be good. In 1 Corinthians, we've seen their struggle with sexual immorality and idolatry, and Paul exhorts them again and again to glorify God with your bodies, with your worship, and in your living. And the same is true for us. Have you reflected on this? Have you looked upon the face of our resurrected Lord Jesus, the one whose resurrection promises our own? I urge you, take time today, consider his life, death, and resurrection, and what this means for you now, and the life you lead here on earth now, and then beyond.
Are you reflecting God's renewed humanity as we head towards the completion of transformation? Let me pray for us.